0: The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church and Pastor Greg Davis in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about Cashin FBC, please visit cashinfbc.org. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 14? And I want to say a couple of things up front as you turn to John chapter 14. This would have been, under most circumstances, it would have been multiple messages, Uh, but we have a date, I have a date in mind where I want to get to the end of this sermon series on the church, and some of you have even asked, is it ever going to end, this sermon series on the church, but we are working toward a goal, and there will be some things that at the end of this sermon series on the church that you're going to be able to act on at the end of this, and so... Uh, Thank you for your patience through this series and and probably about three more weeks that we'll get to the end of this. We have some things that I want to address, but this, like I said, would have normally been under several messages. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll go into the Word of God together. Father God, help us to love you more by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us by that same grace and Holy Spirit serve you better. And Lord, certainly we want to seek to meet the needs of those around us and do that with joy. Father, I pray for eyes that see, for ears that hear, and for hearts that are quick to obey. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's not only you that it's a painful experience for to hear me preach. (laughs) Several years ago... Uh, we we were counting it up today. It was been eight years since we moved into this church building, but but several years ago, we realized there were some things kind of hanging out that we needed to correct, and so I handed the staff of this church a book by Tom Rainer, and the name of the book was "Becoming a Welcoming Church." Now, before you judge the title of the book, it has more to do with uh, not. It's not only about making sure we're greeting people. When we come into the church and saying welcome to our church or anything of that nature. We agreed in the first service we have the world's greatest greeter in this church named Kit. Okay, Kit's not in this service. But but we have that blessing of having a, a wonderful greeter at the door who comes through and welcomes everybody in both services. It's more than that what Rainer was trying to discuss in this book about being a welcoming church. One of the things that he addresses in the book is, is your service boring? When people come in, are are they bored of the service and bored of the setup and everything else? Are the members territorial? He doesn't use that exact word, but you can imagine coming into a church where everybody has their pew, their seat, and and locks that, make sure you can't get in. Or if you sit in it, they ask you to move, which, Jack, this is no judgment on you. Okay, you've had that same seat the entire time. Uh, Is the church website updated? And uh, there was a lady in the book that talked about showing up to a service based on what the service times had been on the website, and she showed up in the middle of a service that was already going on because the church website had never been updated. And last night, Josiah was making updates to her church website so that we wouldn't be guilty of that. Uh, Is there clear signage in the church? Uh, When you come in here, one of the things that we changed after this meeting was that we realized we knew where everything was, but not everybody that was visiting the church knew uh, the difference between where the nursery was and the bathrooms, and so we put those signs out there. And I use this as an example because Gretz and I attended a funeral in Tulsa several months ago, and we literally couldn't find the bathrooms. Uh, We didn't know where the auditorium was. There was no clear markings for any of those things. And so we've changed the signage so that you know where you are in the church. Is the church dirty or is the church clean? That's what Rayner's talking about. Are you a welcoming church? Uh, Rainer tells a funny story about a church going in there and counting 10 used pianos in the church. And he said there's something about churches that feel like they have to have used pianos all over the church. But here's the reality that I came to kind of in my mind after I read this book. When people visit a church, they have expectations, right? Now, those may not be your expectations when you uh, come to church. Is it clean or dirty or is there clear signage? But you're probably asking something like this. Is there a good children's program? Is the youth ministry thriving? Uh, Is the preaching bearable? Can we sit through a whole... 30 or 45 minute sermon on Sundays and the reality is we all have expectations and there's nothing wrong with that we even have a name for that sometimes we call it church shopping but here's the question I want to turn on you this morning should the church that you're visiting have expectations for you as a potential member and the answer that I'm going to give you this morning is yes And I base this on the teaching and preaching of the New Testament. And I want to tell you this, if you don't know this, if you've never read through the Bible or you weren't equipped in the Bible as a young person, that most of the New Testament that you're reading in your uh, devotional time is written to churches. The church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, the, the Thessalonica church. All those are written to churches... And they're addressing really what we would call uh, codes or ethics in the church. how, How we're to live our lives in the church. And some of it's corrective. Some of it is given in the form of imperatives or commandments. Even when Paul writes to Timothy, his young protege, he has expectations for what leaders will look like in the church if they choose to lead the church. So if you join this church, one of the things that we have is a membership class, and I want you to understand this, there is a whole section in that church membership class on what we call membership expectations. And here's what I would like to do, is I would like to walk you through what I consider to be four of the most important membership expectations for this church, okay? And I want to just walk through these one at a time. First and foremost is that as a member of this church, we must believe rightly. We must believe rightly. Now, I want to first explain what that does not mean as we begin, okay? That does not mean that all beliefs that we hold as a church are equally important. As a matter of fact, there are what we would call secondary doctrines or secondary issues that we would say, this is not a deal breaker if you were to join the church and you say, I don't hold that position. Let me give you an example of one of those, okay? There is a category within theology that is known under a heading called eschatology. And here's what eschatology would include. How do you as a church member view life after death? How do you view the second coming of Christ? How do you view uh, the establishment of God's kingdom? And there are a plethora of beliefs under that one heading. Some people are post-meal. Some people are all mill, Some people are pre-meal. Some people are dispensational in their eschatology. And the reality is, in this room, I can tell you, if I were to poll you, some of you are all over the map regarding how you think it all plays out at the end, Okay? That is not something that we would say, you have to hold this to join the church. Uh, there's other things like how we choose to educate our children. That's a freedom in Christ issue, quite frankly. And I want to tell you this, we have a healthy uh, homeschool co-op that meets here every Wednesday, wall-to-wall kids, and we welcome them to do that. Then there are those of us who have chosen uh, to, to participate in Cashin's public schools. There are people who have gone through here who even had their kids in private schools. And we welcome all of those. We don't say, you're wrong for doing this or you're wrong for doing this. We believe that that is a uh, a freedom in Christ issue. And I want to tell you a funny little story uh, about our homeschool friends and me as a public school dad. Joe Kim and I, when they started to join this church, he wanted to go eat lunch with me. And I knew that Joe was homeschooling his kids and he knew that I was sending my kids to public school and, and I just said, Joe, I have a confession to make to you. I said, when we threaten our kids, we threaten them with homeschooling. And, and Joe started laughing. He looked at me and he said, Greg, here's something funny. He said, we always threaten our kids with public schools. And, and so I thought that was just one of those issues where we both said, you've chosen one route, I've chosen another. But we can love each other and be unified in those things, right? And all God's people said, So in those issues, we don't have to have complete uniformity and we can still worship together. But let me give you some examples when we talk about believing rightly on things that we do need to have uniformity. John 14 would be an example of that. And let me give you a little bit of context in this. This is actually a section of scripture on heaven. And here's the reality. And I want you to hear this if you didn't grow up in the church or you've got questions about Jesus This is a statement that Jesus is making on how we get to heaven. You you see, Jesus says, I'm going to go and create a place. I'm going to go and build a a place for you. And where I am, you will be also because I'm going to come get you and bring you back to myself. It's all about eternal life. And one of the questions that Thomas has in this is, how do we get to where you're going? And I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 6. This is one of those statements that we must all agree on. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, there's three statements that Jesus made there. We're calling these in in theology, I am statements. The first one is that I am the way. And, And I've said this before, and you say, boy, this overlaps a lot of what you said. But it's still worth revisiting. Jesus is the way, not a way. There's a difference. Because there's people that just say, hey, any way works. Choose it. Be loyal to it, and you'll get there. No, Jesus says, I am the way. Notice also Jesus says, I am here the truth. Jesus is the embodiment of truth. In other words, we can trust everything that he's saying because he is the truth, and he only speaks the truth. And then the last thing that Jesus says here is, I'm the life. Jesus brings abundant life. Jesus brings new life, right, when he saves us and converts us. But more importantly, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. That's the statement that Jesus makes here. And so I want you to see the last part of this verse that this becomes so important. No one, and I would like, I didn't do this in the first service, I'd like for everyone to say this with me. Everybody say no one, right? No one comes to the Father but through me. This means, this is an exclusivity claim. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. This is a deal breaker for us as a church. If you come in and you say, I'm not abiding by that. I think all religions are equal. I'll share a story with you. I work an ecumenical retreat twice a year. And, and it, there's you know, Methodists at work and there's non-denominationalists at work and, and Baptists at work. And we stand together unified around Jesus Christ. But I always vet people when I work with them. And here's what I say. Two, two questions. What do you think of the authority of Scripture? Just in ca- casual conversation, if I'm working with another pastor, what do you think about the authority of Scripture? And they'll normally tell you what they believe. And then I'll say this. What do you think about the exclusivity of Christ? His claims that He's the only way to heaven. And only one time in 21 years... That I have one man tell me, hey, Christ is the only way for me, but not for everybody else. And you know what I told the leadership of that retreat? I said, I can't ever work with him ever again. Do I love him? Yes. Deep, intimate fellowship? No. That can't happen. Because that claim that Jesus is making says we have to rally around one thing, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whether we be Baptist or non-denominational, whatever it is, that's what unifies us. So Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Trinity came down to dwell in human flesh, only way to be reconciled to God the Father. And all God's people, I say, hope, say amen to that. Here's another that I say is a rallying point that we have to agree on. To deny God's Word is to literally deny God. Uh, This started in the garden, by the way, if you don't know that, when when uh, Satan would say in the ear of Eve, can you really trust God's word? Did God really say? But we have to have a rallying cry that God's word is essential in all things. Because there are so many people who believe I can have Jesus and reject his word. Right? I can have Jesus and I can have that relationship with him, but everything else in the scriptures I can reject. Well, I want you to turn to Mark's gospel with me to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and I want you to look at verse 38. If you don't know the context of this, this is in the course of a pretty difficult conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Uh, Jesus has really kind of laid out for them his identity in this passage, and one of the things that's going on here is that they're getting the identity correct, And there's kind of a celebration that breaks out. But then you remember Peter makes the mistake. And Peter says, but it doesn't have to come through the cross. The the, uh, the work doesn't have to come through the cross. And so you remember what Jesus does. He rebukes Peter in this passage. And this is kind of the summary of all of that teaching in verse 38. Notice what it says. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Notice two things that have to be in alignment in order for us to be with Christ for eternity. We must not be, notice here in verse 38, we must not be ashamed of Jesus. He he says, if anyone is ashamed of me. Now we get that. Especially as Baptists, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And, and Jesus says there are some people who are going to be ashamed of him. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to tell people they follow Jesus. And, and here's what Jesus says. I'll be ashamed of them on the day of judgment. We get that. But would you look at the second point that Jesus makes here? Whoever is ashamed of me, don't miss this, and my words. Now, you read a commentary, here's what they're going to say. The specific teachings of Jesus, that's what he's talking about when he talks about his words. But can I tell you this this morning? There is a triune God that we serve, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the author of Scripture is, guess who? The author of Scripture is that triune God. He inspired all men to write. So to reject the Bible is to reject Jesus Christ himself. People don't understand that. They don't understand the gravity of that. They don't understand the the weight of that when we say you have to take Jesus and his words as a package deal. Now, let me explain something to some of you this morning. You say, man, Greg, I've read the Bible and I have lots of questions about it. That's okay. That's okay. Greg, I've read a lot of passages and I'm confused. That's okay. I've read a lot of things that I can't quite explain to other people. That's okay. But here's what we must affirm as followers of Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We have to affirm that together. Those are those heels that we as a church have to die on. That we can't negotiate in those things. So when we talk about this, we're talking about every person standing on perfect revelation of God. Every person standing on the exclusivity of Christ. We must believe rightly. Now some of you here are just visiting you say, I don't know what Baptists believe. Well, I've got a little pamphlet here (laughs) called the Baptist Faith and Message. Now I, I, I told you years ago I just thought this was geeky to read this. But I want to tell you this, this little pamphlet will answer for you what we believe and why we believe it based on what the Bible says. So several people came up after church and they said, can I grab one of those? I invite you to come up, grab me and say, hey Greg, I want one of those pamphlets. We give these, they're only $3 a piece, okay? No, really they're free, they're free from the church. I was going to see if anybody fell for that, Uh, maybe find a way to fund the new church building, okay? They're $10 a piece, but... If you need one of those, you come and find me. The reality is, first and foremost, in the church, we must believe rightly. Secondly, is we need to live righteously. We need to live righteously. These things, if you look in the Bible, what we believe and what we do are married together. They're not separated, and one's not optional, and the other is kind of forced on us. These things are married together. In other words, your life should conform to what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Now let me tell you this. The Bible is clear that if a person is truly converted by the power of the Holy Spirit and has been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it will change them. It will change them. Now, don't hear me saying you'll become perfect, but it will change you. When Christ saves you, and I want to tell you what I changed in my notes this week. Here's what I wrote down. When Christ saves you, he also intends to transform you. Here's what I changed. When Christ saves you, he will transform you. Not intends, it will happen, brothers and sisters. And and I need you to turn to another place with me. Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you can turn out there... Past those books, past Galatians, you'll find they're tucked away. That nice little book, Ephesians. And I want you to look with me in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4. And there's going to be some very important applications at the end of this, okay? Look at verse 3. Paul writing, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's evidence of the Trinity again that God is the Father of Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Notice there's nothing lacking in our life when we're in Christ Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing. He says this is in the heavenly places in Christ. Now verse 4. Just as He, God the Father, chose us, that's us, the redeemed, in Him, Christ Jesus. And when did He do that? When did He do that? According to this text, He did it before the foundation of the world. Now this is what I don't want you to miss. So many people get hung up on this and and they say, wow, that's really hard to bring in, that's hard to soak in. Don't miss the purpose in all of this. This is why he did all of this work, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So why does God do a work in your life so that you'll be holy and blameless in him? And let me explain what that means, two ways that that works. First and foremost, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, what we call positionally. That means you have a right standing before God that cannot be changed. There's a new position in Christ. If you need a cross-reference for this, go to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what it's going to say. Therefore, we have peace with God. Having been justified by God, we have peace with God. And that's the standing, positional standing, can't be changed. One of the reasons that God did this is so that we would be holy and blameless positionally before Him. But let me tell you a second way, is that we would be holy and blameless practically before Him. That means that God is changing not only your status in Him, but He's changing the way you live. And hear me this morning, He has given you His Holy Spirit to do this. Now, let me tell you why this is so important that you grasp grasp this. I want to give you one word. I want everybody to write it down. Why is God making us holy and blameless? Why is it so important that we strive to live this out in the strength of the Spirit? One word, reputation. And you say, well, who cares about my reputation? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking first and foremost about God's reputation. Because when we're saved, here's what we're telling people. We are telling people that God can change me and God can change you. We're saying you have had or we have had an encounter with the creator of the universe and then you're going to walk away and say, but it didn't really change me. Brothers and sisters, you understand you cannot have an encounter with the creator of the universe and walk away the same. You remember my story that I told about Paul Washer uh, saying that someone walked in and said, I'm sorry, I'm late. I was hit by an 18-wheeler on the way here. And Washer said, how do we know he's lying? Because he was still walking, right? That's what happens when we encounter the creator of the universe. God's reputation is at stake. And, And we don't want to damage that in any way. Let me give you someone else's reputation that's at stake. Christ's reputation is at stake. Christ's reputation. Why? Because Christ died for our sins so that we would no longer live in them. Are we telling people that's not true by the way that we live? I want to read to you from one of the old commentators. He says, everything that they can seize on as improper conduct, he's talking about the unbelieving world, is maliciously turned against Christ and His doctrine. The consequence is that the, through our fault, the sacred name of God is exposed to insult. Brothers and sisters, we're upholding not our own reputation, but the reputation of the triune God. And let me tell you another reputation we're holding up. The church's reputation. We are His representatives to a lost and dying world. We're spokespeople. Right, And we want to be good spokespeople to the lost and dying world. That's why we live differently. That's one of the reasons when I talk about living righteously, when we talk about it as a church family, that we're talking about this being the essence of something that shields and protects the reputation of God. But let me give you a second reason it's so important, okay? Is it's an effective witnessing tool. Living a righteous life is an effective witness tool. I want to say this after many, many years in ministry. Do you know who I find when, and I've said this to you from this pulpit multiple times. If someone's hurting and and they're really, they're they're down and out on their luck. And they have a choice between someone in the church who lives it and doesn't live it. You know who they're going to find every time? The person who lives it. Promise you, 100% of the time. They're going to say, I know I can trust them because of the life they live. They won't do that with people who are on the fence. But we should live righteously for that reason. I want to show you a verse that that we can kind of pull out of its context and apply here. 1 Peter chapter 3. Imagine a woman walking faithfully with the Lord who does not have a faithful husband. This is what Peter's addressing here. And notice what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, that means they're not saved, okay? They may be won without a word. The the wife's job here is not to berate the husband, to beat him into submission, to tell him he's a loser for not going to church. It's to win them without saying a word. And and how do they do that? By their behavior. Now, I want you to look at verse 2. What do they do? They observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I'm going to tell you a story, and please don't take this as boasting at all. Uh, You know this. I was radically converted out of a dark and depraved lifestyle in 1999. September of 1999, I can tell you exactly where I was. Converted by the grace of Christ. Walked with the Lord ever since then. And there was a young man that I was running around with at that time that we were in the same lifestyle together and everything else. We did all the same things, ran in all the same circles. And five years after that, you know that I became the pastor of this church. And sitting on the back row the first Sunday, not the Sunday that they called us, but the Sunday that we started at this church, that young man was sitting at the back of the church. And he walked up to me after the service, and he said to me this. He said, this is real. He said he'd been watching me for five years. And and he kept saying, I I, I kept waiting for you to walk away. I kept waiting for this to change. And he said, this is real. Now, I want to tell you this. By the grace of Christ, he's been saved. His wife has been saved. And they're raising their kids in the church. That's an effective witnessing tool when we live righteously. Notice I did not say perfectly. But we seek to live righteously. Now, third thing is this. As a church member, we should attend frequently you know where I'm going to go this morning Hebrews chapter 10 you know that's a standard text on the the church and attendance but I want to read the entire context here so that you understand why we need to attend frequently 19 through 25 therefore brethren since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus there's still people turning here so you can grab it on the screen if you need to By a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's what we ought to be doing because of Jesus or what we can do. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We can now, because of Christ, draw without fear to God. We can do that. And all God's people said, Amen. What else can we do? We can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. It goes back to Jesus and his faithfulness. And then here's the other thing we ought to be doing. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Two things that he says we ought to be doing. He says, one, one, we ought to be stirring one another up. Stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And the second thing he says we ought to be doing is encouraging one another. And how do we do that? By not forsaking gathering together. And I guess in the writer's day, there were still people even in that day who had the habit of not coming to church. And I don't want you to miss this. Would you please key in on verse 24 and 25, two words put together there, one another. It takes other people to stir us up to love and good deeds. I can't do that to myself. Here's another thing I can't do. I cannot encourage myself. But here's what can happen with you. If I'm going through a tough week, you can give me courage. That's what it means to encourage someone, to, to give them courage. If I'm going through a rough patch at work or if I'm going through times of anxiety, I can reach out to you because you're a church member and you can encourage me and vice versa, right? But that can only happen if we do it in the context of one another. That's done in the body of Christ. I have met three people in my lifetime in the last 21 or so years who pulled away from the church not for reasons being disappointed with the church or anything like that. Three people who said, I can do this better on my own. I, I want to tell you the condition of those three people. One of them lives on a compound by himself and his wife and their kids that never talks to anybody in the outside world anymore. And some of you are going, is that such a bad thing, right? Um, but, but really got freaky about this. Just said, I don't need the church. I, I don't need to, to gather with other believers. And just basically... Uh, twisted off and went off on his own and and nobody's seen him in years. Two others, you know what happened? Here's what they said. We're going to go on Sundays, the Lord's Day, and we're going to work among the homeless and serve the homeless. Is that a bad thing? Not at all. But they pulled away and did it away from the context of the church. And let me tell you, me being a witness to this, their attitude is bitter, angry, disappointed and judgmental. All those things. And Gretchen knows who I'm talking about. We can apply this to them. And I'm not saying this in judgment. It's reality. Why is this the case? Because they're doing great works among the homeless. There's nobody there to spur them along. There's nobody there to encourage them. That's why we must gather frequently. Hear me this morning. We need each other. We cannot do this on our own. We need the church body to stir and and, and to encourage one another. The last thing is this. We need to give generously. We need to give generously. I've said this throughout this series on the church. Why does God bless us? It's not to hoard it up. It is to give it away. Not just financially, by the way, That comes with our talents, what God has gifted us to do. Those are called spiritual gifts. God did that in the context of the church so that we would give those things away. With our time, so many of you come on Sunday mornings and you serve, whether it be as ushers or Sunday school teachers or running tech and things of of that nature. We need to give our time to the church and to the kingdom of God. But we also need to give of our treasures that God has given us. And if you're part of this church, you should give all three of those things. All three of those things. Would you turn with me one last place? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Then we're going to close. I told the first service, 10 more minutes and you can go to Furs cafeteria. And everybody laughed. I guess Furs doesn't exist anymore. I said, maybe I'm showing my age now. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 5, I'll wait for everybody to get there because I want you to have your eyes on this passage. About generosity. Context of this is Paul's taking up an offering for those in need. And he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. This is a financial gift. He says so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. He he didn't want to give any time that they would look at that gift and say maybe we'll just spend this on something we need. Paul says no, we want to remember the purpose of the gift is to help people. Verse 6. Now I say this, so I say this, he who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Please hear me this morning. If I wanted to abuse, spiritually abuse you this morning, do you know how I would preach this? If you'll give, God promises that you'll have a Mercedes Benz sitting in your driveway. Because you you reap sparingly, you, 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 you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. But if you'll give generously, God gives right back to you the Rolex watch, The Mercedes-Benz, the Bentley, all those things, right? That's not what this is talking about, but that's so often how this is preached. Let me tell you what Paul is saying. If you will give to the ministry of the kingdom, God will continue to provide money to continue giving to the kingdom work. Look at it with me in verse uh, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart... Not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So always having all sufficiency in everything. You may have an abundance for every good deed. Why do we sow generously? And give generously? So God will continue to give us the money to continue to push out this door. And I want to say this bragging on this church. If you're not a member here. In the last couple of months of... November and December up into January, between missions and benevolence, everything else, I think we pushed about fourteen to $20,000, just, just additional money going out the door. That doesn't count what we give through the year. 14, $20,000. The Gideons. Do any of you know a Gideon? The Gideons are some of my favorite people in the world. They're like Amway salesmen. If you ever get them started, they won't leave you alone, but they're great people, okay? The Gideons come here every year, and they take up an offering. Here's what they say. Of all the churches that they go to, this is the biggest offering in their districts that they take up. Well, it's not unusual to write a four or $5,000 check for Bibles. We love that. We want to continue to do that. And I have begged and pleaded with this church, never stop having open pockets, because here's what's going to happen. God is just going to continue to pour in and pour in and pour in, and we're going to have more and more to give, right? That's why we do it. That's why we do it is to spread the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what purpose? Not for hoarding up, but for sowing. And he'll increase the harvest of your righteousness. You grow in godliness when you give. Brothers and sisters, we want to be the church that is radically generous. I just want to say if there's a need, we'll meet it. And that's how we've always been as a church body. But I want to continue to do that. That is our expectations as a church body when you join us in fellowship. Is that you'll believe rightly. That you'll live righteously. That you'll gather frequently and that you will give generously. Would you stand with me this morning? Those of you who are here know that we don't do a long, drawn-out invitation, but we always invite you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you say, Greg, I don't know what that means. We will stay after church and explain it to you. We will tell you what it means to walk with Jesus, to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ, and be given the gift of eternal life. The following message is brought to you by Cashin First Baptist Church in Cashin, Oklahoma. For more information about our church, please visit cashinfbc.org.